Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to today's edition of Planet Pod, coming to you from Glasgow and COP26, in partnership with COP26 Universities Network and University of Strathclyde. I'm Amanda Carpenter and today we're discussing a subject very dear to my heart, the politics of climate change. As I walked to our mini-studio this lunchtime, I met the first proper demonstration I've seen since I got to Glasgow. XR are out with their drums and banners, making noise but not disrupting anyone much in the autumn sunshine. While my guests today haven't taken to the streets just yet, they both do view climate change through a political lens. Mark Maslin is a professor of Earth System Science at University College London and author of How to Save Our Planet, The Facts. Hello, Mark, and welcome. Hello, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be here. My second guest, Alex Bradbury, describes himself as an environmental campaigner, Citizens' Assembly megafan and drag comedy artist. He's also instrumental in the Zero Hour campaign as part of the Climate Ecological Emergency Bill that is calling for three outcomes from COP. Hello, Alex. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Hi, Amanda. Great to be here. I wonder if I could start with you, Mark. Um, We're three days in, I think, losing count here. Um, How does COP feel from where you're sitting? So COP is this amazing jamboree. So it starts as soon as you arrive at the station. So you get off the train, there are photographers there because they're trying to see if there's anybody famous because, of course, we're all trying to keep our carbon footprint down. There are protesters there. And when I arrived, we had the code red ladies in all their incredible red outfits, basically doing their dirge and basically moving around. And then when you get to the actual centre... You've got protesters outside, and then you've got this incredible mixture of the world. I mean, you've got indigenous people from the Congo, from the Amazon. You've got African sort of like leaders. You've got sort of American sort of presidents turning up. And it's an incredible noise and space. And you suddenly realize how amazing humanity is in its diversity. And I think people don't realize having something like 20,000 people all in the same place, particularly after COVID, is really does your head in. And the energy, and and everybody seems to be running around with their eyes really wide open going, I don't know what we're doing, I don't know what we're doing. However, things are now calming down because the first two days were when the leaders, uh, you know, the great and the good were here. Now they've left. Now we can actually get down to the calm negotiation and actually get down to the nitty gritty of COP26. Yeah, it definitely feels a little bit less frenetic than it felt on those first couple of days, doesn't it? Have you, you're obviously in and out of the blue zone because you have a pass, for the, uh, for the, which is the bit where all the, the negotiations are happening. Has that tone changed? Are you able to get a bit closer? Because people have been saying to me, the thing about the blue zone is there's a conference within a conference. There's all the guys in the middle doing the negotiation and then there's all of the people on the periphery. Are you seeing a bit more of a transition between the two, a bit more traffic between the, the, the negotiation room and, and the outside? So I think a lot of people are maybe new to COP and don't realise how it works. So there are, I would say, two levels of badges. So you have the party. So you have people who are part of countries' negotiation teams. And that's a platinum card. So you can go anywhere and you can go into all the negotiations. And then the next group, which is really important, which is like UCL, the observers. So this is the NGOs. This is all these sort of like universities, companies that are represented. And we are there to basically make sure it's open and transparent. 
Now, the problem is the rooms aren't necessarily big enough to have the negotiations and the observers. In the old days, pre-COVID, of course, everybody will be squeezed in there and it will be sweaty and sort of like, uh, all like the movies. But because of COVID, we're trying to make sure that the rooms are as safe as possible. And so therefore, we can observe the negotiations. But because some of the negotiations are tricky, then that's when countries will go to a side room and they'll talk privately. And I think that's really important that they can actually iron out little things like that. And of course, people complain going, well, I'm not sure what's going on. And the thing is, because it's so loud and so large, people feel that they're not connected because there's so many things going on. But actually, underneath, all of the negotiators are working through the night to actually try and get these deals sorted. So you're comfortable that things are making some progress, are you? So I think some people misunderstand what this COP is about because it's different to previous COPs. So... In Paris in 2015, we were all running around desperate to try and get countries to agree a major uh, statement, and which came out, which was fantastic. This COP is different because it's going to take the Paris Agreement and try to operationalize it, make companies and countries actually understand that we are on the net zero uh, trajectory and actually try to match their ambitions to that. So this is really sort of like the nitty gritty. It's a lot of bureaucracy. It's a lot about negotiations, about making sure there's no double accounting when we look at emissions and absorption of carbon into the land. So really, it's a very different COP. So these big announcements, they're great, but actually the COP is really much more about making the Paris Agreement work and holding countries to account, not just this year, but every single year into the future. And that's where we've got a problem, isn't it, politically? Because that's where the backsliding is happening, isn't it, Alex? Because if you think about what, you know, Paris held us to 1.5, there's a lot of talk about 1.5 degrees just not being achievable and, and countries accepting two degrees, which we all know would be disastrous. So the political aspect of COP, the needing to keep the politicians' feet to the fire, needing to keep the, the focus on real, solid political commitments being rolled out, that's what we have to do in part at this COP, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. Um, so in the Zero Hour campaign, we mainly focus on um, the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill, which is obviously a domestic UK-based campaign. Um, but uh, for COP, we've translated some of the key um, key aspects of the bill to the international level, which was fairly easy because it's based on international agreements anyway. Um, and... Yeah, and so so the idea really is to uh, push ambition. So the three, basically, to outline the three outcomes that we're calling for, um, and they're based on both the cops. This is actually a really important point to make: is there's so much um, media um, and awareness now around COP twenty six, so the climate cops, but there's another cop which is the biodiversity cop, um, and that is coming up in May. Oh, it's been put back twice, um, and. We think, um, and a lot of scientists agree with us, that climate and nature, these, these dual crises, which are essentially the separation of even seeing them as two crises is problematic to begin with. They're essentially the same thing, and we've separated them out artificially, which creates problems because um, you end up coming up with climate solutions, which backfire for biodiversity, which then backfire for the climate crisis anyway. So that's a long way of bringing it to the first outcome, which is that um, COP 
26 and COP15, so these two need to come together with a joint strategy on climate and nature. So how, the, how are they going to work together? And we're hearing about that actually more and more over the last few days I've been reading. So that's really good to see that that's getting some traction um, in political circles. The second one is around um, the carbon budget. So that is climate focused. Um, and that is that the world government, world's governments commit to sticking to the carbon budget. Which So the IPCC comes up with various different scenarios and various different potential budgets. So the total, um, a total amount of emissions that we can afford to emit to stay within certain thresholds. So we, we're calling on the world's governments to commit to the budget that would keep us within 1.5 degrees at a 67% chance. So um, why that's, that's um, a lot of numbers, but basically at the moment, our legislation in UK law, there's several things to say here, but the first thing is that it's on the surface, it's, it's sticking to the, it, it, it claims to aim at the budget for, uh, that, that gives us a 50% chance. So a 50-50 chance of staying within 1.5. And as you've intimated, we really want to stay within 1.5. So we want more than a flip of a coin kind of chance. And in any case, um, we're not even sticking to that target. <laughs> Um, so, but what we've done as a campaign is, like I say, we've translated this to an international level, um, and yeah, and, and 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 looking for the for the globe to to, uh, to commit to that. The third one is is then based on COP fifteen, and I know we're talking about COP twenty six, but just to give COP fifteen a plug and to put that into people's minds. And COP fifteen is the biodiversity the COP, biodiversity yeah? one. Um, so that is about. Already on the table at, at that COP is um, a global biodiversity framework, which includes basically a kind of Paris Agreement for nature, is how what people are mm. calling it. It's a good way to think of it, actually, because mm. we don't really have that for nature currently. So that's already on the table. That's not something we need to campaign for. It's in the room. But it's, it's what exactly happens and the level of ambition within that. So currently, what's on the table is that we halt... Um, biodiversity loss but um and that's also what we currently have in proposed uk legislation as well but if you think halting halting the situation when you consider if you just look at you, the uk we're one of the most environmentally degraded countries in the world mm. we don't want to you know or if you think about globally what is it we've lost 50 percent on average of vertebrate population since 1970 so this isn't a situation that we just want to stay at we want to improve things so we're calling on for that global goal for nature to be a, a visible and measurable improvement by 2030 so that we're actually we haven't just stopped we've bent the curve and things mm. are getting better by 2030 mm. um, yeah thank you that was really fantastic um explanation and I'm. I suppose I'm like a lot of people. I'm frustrated that we have these these um, you know these statements, these commitments, these signed up agreements, and yet year after year after year, our leaders are able to get away with actually delivering on them. I mean, we're a, we're not delivering on our climate goals here in the UK. We're falling short. We're not in Scotland. You know, the first minister was at a lecture last night saying, "I am not doing enough." Hands up, I admit, I'm not doing enough as a leader. So, so how can we? How can we shift that? How, is, how can we as citizens actually impact what happens in those rooms, in those negotiations? Because I absolutely get your point, Mark. It's about the detail. It's about the granular signing off of agreements. It's about getting countries to commit and stick to their commitments. And they say all of these things, and then they go away, and they do very little. And our own government, 
appears to do very little. I mean, we have a budget that didn't even mention climate change. So what can we do? How can we turn those, those tables and how can we get politically <coughs> more engaged and force the change that we need to force and get our leaders to listen to us? So I think the first thing to realise is the scale of the issue. So it's all very well us complaining that governments aren't doing enough. But what we're asking well governments to do is in 30 years completely change the economic basis and the energy generation of the planet. And that's fantastic. And I agree we should be demanding that. So if we think about it at the moment, 80% of all energy around the world is produced by fossil fuels. We're seeing huge amounts of renewables being built in most countries around the world. But all that is doing is taking up the extra demand in energy, which will continue to go up because we need to lift billions of people out of energy poverty. So what we need to do is actually get governments to start to erode the base level of 80% of fossil fuels. And we need to drive that through. And as individual citizens, I think what we forget is we're really quite powerful. And people forget that. And I think what I always advocate is the first thing that every individual should do is talk about it. I have seen in organisations, I've seen in companies, I've seen in churches, I've seen in football teams. When someone talks to somebody else about the climate crisis, they go, oh, no, I'm worried about that as well. I'm so glad you're worried about it. And then they say, well, hang on, why can't we do things? And I've seen billion-dollar companies infected by green viruses, as I call them, <laughs> friends of mine, who have started to actually just, just chat. And it then gets up to the CEO, down to the sort of like all the staff, and suddenly the whole company moves. Because companies are moving much faster than governments because they yeah. realise that, guess what? Being sustainable is actually good for their bottom line. Being sustainable is good for their staff. Being sustainable means that they actually can recruit some of the brightest and smartest young people on the planet to come in and actually make their company even more successful. So there's a real motivation there. I also think that there are lots of things, and I talk about this in my book. Um, I have a, a chapter which is, again, the book is just bullet points because I wasn't into writing lots of, lots of deep, meaningful stuff. It's just facts, artifacts. So there's about 15 things individuals can do, and you can literally go through my book and tick off things you can do. So shift to renewable energy, uh, have a more plant-based diet. Um, if you have a pension and you're lucky enough to have to one of those, make sure that the pension isn't invested into fossil fuels. So there's lots of things as individuals we can do. But that's pushing, you know, having said to you what can individuals doing, that a lot of that seems to be pushing some of the responsibility onto us as individual citizens. And if you like, getting, giving the government a get-out-of-jail card free, because if, if we have to make all of the changes, you know, and the government can make announcements that say things like, you know, we can have exactly, we can have a carbon-neutral world and nothing has to change for people, you don't have to give anything up, there's no hair shirts, quote-unquote. How, I mean, how do we... How do we just translate that? Because it's fine. People will, you know, eat you know, eat more vegetables, eat a more plant-based diet. If you can afford to, you can swap to renewables. You know, but but actually we're just letting them off the hook a little bit, aren't we? Don't you think we're just actually giving them a free pass here? Mm. I think the division between individual change and system change is a bit artificial, actually. And I think okay. the system is made up of individuals. Um and I yeah, I do see this constantly in conversations with people. People feel disenfranchised or feel powerless. But I agree with Mark that actually we have, 
quite a lot of power. There's the individual changes that we can make to our own life, which can then cascade, and especially, you know, through social media, and we don't realise how interconnected we are and how much impact that we can have, you know, uh, especially, you know, at company level, if you're... People often separate out their lives between their personal life and their professional life, which is quite unhelpful because... Uh, and they, they see their professional life as somehow they're a cog in a machine. This is sweeping generalisation, but I do, I, I've, I've lived like this as well and thought, well, that's not really my responsibility, what goes on there. I'm just, you know, but you can achieve change there. The other really big thing I want to say, though, is that I'm relatively new to this kind of campaigning, parliamentary, uh, campaigning on a parliamentary bill. But what I've learned over the last 18 months or so is while I think there are flaws with our representative democracy, I'd like to see some improvements. Um, it does work in some ways. And I've talked to MPs and um, I've talked to much more experienced campaigners than, than I have worked on similar campaigns. And they really are, they really generally do actually do <laughs> what, what they believe the majority of their constituents want. So it does actually make a difference if you, if you really engage with your MP. It, and actually, especially when you think that they're not listening. Um, for instance, just to give an example from our campaign, so both major parties, Conservatives and Labour, um, have a kind of standard response that we saw, especially at the beginning of our campaign. Um, what I mean by that is there was, a, there was a template that they were sending out to constituents and presumably was produced by Party HQ. Um, and that can be really, um, that can feel disenfranchising, very disheartening to receive that because you can, you can kind of pretty quickly realise that it's not addressed to you. Um, but even that, even when you're getting that kind of response, if MPs receive those kind, you know, receive enough letters, emails, tweets, are invited to enough meetings, maybe even attend a few meetings from constituency, eventually they will actually talk to us, and they sometimes they'll talk to each other about it mm. um, and mention, "Hey, I'm getting pestered about this bill." Or eventually they'll get in touch with us or respond to our our emails <laughs> and say, "Hey, so what?" what actually is this bill about then? Go on, mm. finally, you know, tell me what it's about. And then you can start talking about the content, um, which is what it's all about, and talk about the things I mentioned before, yeah. you know, the carbon budget, um, you know, what, why it's so important to stay within 1.5, why climate and nature are so interconnected, uh, why we need to take responsibility for our impact within the UK and around the world, and not just, not just here. Um, all of these kinds of issues. So you can open up that conversation and you... you most we have a lot more power than we think we do. Mm. So you're relatively hopeful about our political, you know, the political will to, to, to make the changes that we need. Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> the process is working. We're not sure the outcome is going to be I what just, we want. What worries me is 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 the sense of um, disillusionment and the the sense of powerlessness is self fulfilling. That's what concerns me. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'm really I don't know what to hope for. And, and, and things keep seem to be changing so quickly. Um, all I can do is just say what I believe and what I see. And I mean, an, another another aspect of it in terms of self fulfilment is if you think about one point five, we talk about can we stay within one point five? Yeah, like there's nothing in nature that is saying, oh, it's too late. We don't have that. Obviously, there's certain baked in temperature rise, but it's not it's not all the way up to one point five yet. That what's stopping us is is human systems is political systems and, and social systems and I'm not obviously that is a massive challenge I'm not saying that and, and, and I do think it's, it's a real uphill struggle for us to stay with the 1.5 but the reason for that is us it's not it's not out there mm. um, and the more of us that really believe that it can happen um, 
you know, and I, I know that sounds kind of hippified and whatever, but it's it's just true. It's like how it works, and it's, it's through these conversations with each other, and it's through believing that that our democracy can work t- to some extent. You know? I also think that there is a, a real issue that we are perceiving it one or the other's fault. We need government, absolutely. We need government to step up and understand how influential they are through doing things like a little bit of regulation here, a little bit of taxation, a little bit of subsidy, and actually shifting the actual ground. We also need companies to actually respond to that. I mean, we've got 100 companies who have been lobbying government to say, look, could you deal with this? Could you do some regulation to help us? do the right thing. And then you have individuals who are collectively very powerful because they they have consumer choices with companies, so they can choose to buy or not to buy, and they can also lobby government and say, look, we really want that. I think one of the most powerful voices for uh, from individuals is the youth voice, because it's really interesting. If you talk to politicians, they are absolutely on the next election cycle. But they've also got to the eye of history because they really want to have a legacy. They want to be remembered. They want to be Churchillian. They want to be Margaret Thatcher. You know, they want to have a legacy. And if the youth are turning around going, well, guess what? You're not going to have a legacy. We're just going to have to come in and clean up your mess. That is bad. I also think we are doing a really bad job at communicating with governments about all the win-win. I mean... We being... We being, I would say, activists, I would say scientists, I would say sort of um, basically society. Because, again, all the things that we're advocating to get to net zero, to reduce emissions, all have positive benefits. So we clean up sort of our air pollution by stopping coal-fired power stations and petrol and diesel vehicles. Suddenly we save 11 million lives around the world. We also then all those lost years of people's lives are suddenly uh, returned. And that's a huge saving in terms of health costs. And we can look at this in every single aspect. If we shift our diet, suddenly people come healthier, live longer, actually cost the NHS less. And I think what we're missing is actually showing government all these win-win and positives, which actually means that if they looked at it as a joined-up, Yes, one department might have to spend a little bit more money with infrastructure, but suddenly the health department makes a saving over the next 10 years. And I think that's the thing that frustrates me about the current government is they have no joined up thinking. Yeah. They really that was don't. a really big if, if the joined up. I mean, yeah. you know, there's, there's no joined up writing in government. Um, I think, you, to be fair, though, I think you're letting the government off the hook a little bit there because it's a, we, if we show them. There have been people who've been working this space for a very long time who've been showing consistently all of those messages. Sustainable business is good business. If we reduce pollution, we live, people live longer. That's longer, healthier, active lives, longer taxpayers, you know, um, in, and economically active. So I think that, that it's not that it hasn't been done. My sense is it's not being heard. Well, I also think that... Government at the moment in the UK really is dysfunctional. Yeah. Uh, and it, I don't, I cannot remember a government being this dysfunctional in my lifetime. Um, and I think that's a real shame because when the civil service works well together to govern, actually you can get lots of things done. But you find at the moment that uh, ideas are being jumped on 
and suddenly operationalized, but they haven't actually thought through the consequences. And that, that frustrates me because we have huge resources in universities, in companies, and therefore we have a huge wisdom base that government could pick on to say, okay, guys, right, how do we make this better? Let's help us, let's make it better. And so I think that's where the frustration, I think that's where the protesters come in. This is where some sort of the activists are coming in because they're seeing the stupidity of government. And I think that's something that people feel really disenfranchised about because if they're saying, if I can see it as a 15 year old at school, that this is what you should be doing, why aren't you doing it? Mm, yeah. And that's essentially the problem, isn't it? Because you've got your cohort of 100 plus MPs. I think it's 115. Not quite sure what the numbers are. It's probably more. 118. There I am. Nearly right. Um, MPs who are supporting the CE, the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill, and quite right too. But that's only, you know, a small part of the parliamentary system. Mm. And if we're hitting this brick wall of of incompetence and Mm -hmm. dysfunctionality and lack of will, and sometimes, let's face it, lack of interest in actually solving this crisis... Then it's 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 not enough, is it? You mean you need all six hundred of them? You don't just need one hundred and eighteen of them, mm-hmm. and and that's how do we? It, that's the bit that I'm trying to tease out. Is how do we get to that next stage? I mean, what is or could be the solution? Because if we're not getting them to listen to us, and then the government isn't functioning properly. I think one one thing we think about a lot in the campaign is how do we make it clear that this has to be cross party and. Um, and we, we really try and make it clear to the MPs that we talk to, or who are prepared to talk to us, that um, that this is a you know a cross party bill, and all of the solutions need to need to be cross party. And I think that's what that's I don't know from my point of view, that's the main obstacle is that we these things get very politicised in a party in a party political sense, um, and feel you know certain fight, certain side feels that the other side is. is winning on it more or has more ownership of it or mm. you know think about the party's branding or this kind of thing um so i think if yeah if we can just make i mean we, we think strategically about it to be honest like that's mm. you know I, in an ideal world you would have mps actually um some of them do but all of them kind of realizing that this is just not a partisan issue um but the the strategy that we have is 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 just to make sure that in our messaging and in uh, the way we explain ourselves it, that we we have broad appeal and that we're not kind of getting into any ideological camps. Mm-hmm. So that's that's part of the reason why the bill is is very much sort of uh, it's bare bones. To be honest, there's quite a, it's a bit more than bare bones because there's actually quite a lot in it. There's, it's quite a detailed <laughs> bill, I seem to remember from previous um, conversations. But, but it's not. It, it doesn't get into all of those yeah. real kind of thick. Um, yeah sort of uh, weedy policy details. Yeah. It's just like, right, this, we, need this, we need an emergency strategy. Uh, this is the level of emergency. These, this is what we've agreed to internationally. This is, the, this is what the science demands. Um, and here's a process to go about it. These are the principles you need to apply. You know, we need to take responsibility for our impact here and abroad, not just here as we do now. Um, you know, we need to uh, protect the livelihoods of high emission people working in high emissions industries. So it's, it's sort of, it sets out the principles, the framework, and then, yeah. then the details for later. But we're not even getting there. because we're not, we're not getting a sort of big whole of government picture within Parliament at the moment because we're not, we're sort of having a piecemeal approach. I think partly because of this obstacle of it being such a, an ad- adversarial kind of politics that 
that we start to see, I think not just politicians, but I think in, in the public, we see that as the only way of doing politics. Everything has to be an argument the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually not the whole way. And that brings me on to another aspect of the bill, which is this temporary climate assembly, which is about facilitated discussions, you know, uh, a, a randomly selected sort of representative group of the public um, that feeds, recommends, it empowers politicians to make decisions because it's like, well, this is what a broad cross-section of the public wants. And there, you know, you've got actual conversations where people work through their differences rather than just debate. I think debate's great, but it's not like 100% of all of our decisions all of the time need to be uh, an, yeah. a shouting match. And that's part of the problem, isn't it, Mark? Um, and, and, and what we've got is, I mean, you know, Christina Figueres has described this as a circular firing squad. Basically, we're all busy shooting at each other and arguing when actually what we need to do is to step back and work together in coalitions cross cross-party, cross-state, cross the world, in order to tackle this ex- existential crisis. So it has to go beyond party politics. It has to go beyond nation politics, doesn't it? And actually be something that we all contribute to. And that's a big ask. Well, I think the fundamental thing you must take away is that the climate does not care what political badge you wear. Okay? It doesn't care what colour or party you sort of like vote for. What it cares is how much carbon is going into the atmosphere. And I think this is where people start to break down these traditional sort of uh, party sort of politics because we know that there are wonderful policies on the right, on the left and in the middle that can deal with emissions and actually the environmental crisis. And what we need to do is actually bring everybody together and actually say, okay, you can argue about other parts of, sort of like society and things like that, but actually when it comes to the environment, we need a team. We need sort of like Team GB to step up and Parliament to say, fine, we're going to empower this and not score points off each other because this needs to be done. And it's really interesting because there is something underneath UK politics. Of course, we have the UK Climate Change Act, which actually mandates whichever government's in power that we will get to sort of like net zero by 2050. And it sets out five-year carbon budgets. And that's really interesting because this is a constitutional solution to a country that has no constitution, which is bizarre. And it's a legal framework that just doesn't exist anywhere else in British uh, sort of uh, politics. But it's a way of actually tying each government or whatever colour badge to that climate target. And I think that's really important to remember. And so therefore, I think you're right. We need to build solidarity, not just between parties in individual countries, but between countries, because this is going to be a global issue. So it's no good America going to net zero, Europe and UK going to net zero, China going to net zero, and all the other countries of the world actually increasing their emissions, because It's the total that goes into the atmosphere that matters, not from where. So this is why the COP26 is so important, because it is about building solidarity. It is bringing 197 countries together. And I think what's really interesting is this is where global politics really operates. And it's one of the few forums where those 197 countries actually come together annually to discuss the world. So it's bizarre that the environmental and climate crisis brings the world closer together. And hopefully we will see within sort of like my lifetime, 
um, solutions coming out of that. But you have to remember, we're a long way away from where we were, say, 10 years ago, mm. because now every country is talking about net zero. Even if they don't want to go there, this is the new actual sort of like terminology. This is where we're all aiming for, which two or three years ago would have been unheard of. Yeah. You're sounding relatively hopeful, I think, which is a good thing, because, I mean, there is quite a lot of scepticism and pessimism kicking around up here in Glasgow and people feeling quite disillusioned. So, so I'm sensing that, you know, we have the mechanism, we have the tool, we have the legal and regulatory framework. All we need now is the will to make that happen. So I think the reason why I am more hopeful than others is because there are some incredibly large mechanisms happening beyond politics. So if you look at economics, we are seeing that renewables are now cheaper than fossil fuels. You're seeing big shifts in money. You're seeing money going into technology. You're seeing the whole car industry going, we're going electric and we're going as fast as possible because we're trying to keep up with Tesla and the others. And so we're seeing these big shifts in society that are occurring underneath the political radar. Mm. And therefore, that's going to feed back up. Now, of course, am I optimistic we're going in the right direction? Yes. Am I optimistic that we're going to do it quick enough as a climate scientist? No. Am I optimistic that we can start keep the pressure going? I mean, just think of the media coverage of COP26. This is unheard of. I mean, this is basically being beamed into every house around the world that this is the conference. And so even if we only make a small incremental change here, we're going to make it every single year. As Greta said, 1.5 isn't the only target. If we miss that, we make 1.6, fine, 1.7. It is never too late to actually save our planet. And what a great point to end on. Mm. And um, huge thank you to my guests and, and all the best of luck to you with the, the, the events that are happening this week in Copper Round CEE. Um, you've got some demonstrations and you've got something fantastic happening at Lush, I think, later this week, haven't you? Do you want to tell people about that quickly? Yes, sure. So on Friday, 5th of November, um, at Lush on Buchanan Street in Glasgow, 4pm, um, we're holding a People's Assembly, so we're going to talk a bit more about the bill, and then we're going to have uh, small discussion groups about uh, probably very similar conversations to what we've had here, but uh, more ideas, more people in the room. Uh, what comes next after COP is what we're going to talk about and how to push for change at national level. And um, so, do you come along? Fantastic. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Mark. Can I Fascinating. Plug the football? Yes, we've got football happening and, of course, the book. Yeah, plug away. So, also, um, I'm organising a charity celebrity football match to raise awareness of climate anxiety in young people. We're supporting an amazing charity called Blameless. So if you're free on the 7th of November and uh, want an evening of seeing uh, aging professors like me get completely outplayed by international women's uh, uh, Scottish uh, footballers, aging football stars from both Celtic and Rangers. Also, I'm probably going to be outplayed by Miss Scotland as well. So... <laughs> It's going to be that a, is going to be a sight to see, <laughs> folks. <laughs> so feel free to come down. It's at Hamilton Academicals. It, uh, doors open at 5.30. It'll be lovely to see you all there to support an absolutely amazing charity looking after the mental health of our young people. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Mark.
fantastic to talk to you both. Thanks, Amanda. Pleasure. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>